0: Well, if you have a Bible today, would you please take it and turn to the first chapter of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you would like to follow along, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. Feel free to take that and turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. If you don't own a Bible, but you'd like to own a Bible, uh, please feel free to take that one home with you. Luke chapter 1, I want to read for us this morning, verses 26 through 38 of Luke chapter 1, being reminded that this is God's holy and inspired, unerring and life-giving Word. If you're able, I would ask you to please stand as I read this portion of God's Word. Let's give it our full attention. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. Let's pray. And now, O God, we ask your help that we might hear and receive faithfully your word today. God, would you use your word in us? Would you draw those who do not believe into faith? Would you cause those who have wandered from you to come back to you? Will you encourage the hearts of your people today, Lord, with this great truth? And as we pray through Christ the Lord, amen. You may have a seat. Now, I know many of you picked up a sermon guide and you noticed that it's two pages this week. And that might have caused some panic. Um, Fear not. Fear not. It's all right. There was just a lot of information. Well, Luke is an historian and he opens his Gospel in the manner that an ancient historian would open such an account. In fact, look at the opening words there beginning in verse 1 of Luke chapter 1. and, And you'll notice in this opening paragraph, he's writing to a man named Theophilus, a Greek who apparently desired a full written account of the life and ministry of Jesus and also an account of the early ministry of the apostles following the resurrection of Christ. And so Luke wrote this big two-volume set, Luke and Acts. It makes up half of the content of the uh, the New Testament. And he begins his account with a brief explanation of how he goes about doing history. And notice what he says, beginning in verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to complete a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, and ministers of the word have delivered them to us it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you most excellent theophilus that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught now right there luke is giving us something of a historiography he's saying this is how i'm doing history and that's why so often new testament scholars refer to luke as the historian of the new testament he gives us more facts and figures, more historical details, more names, more dates than anyone else. And it is because he is setting out to write an orderly account based on eyewitness testimony to this Greek man who may or may not yet be converted. And Luke makes two critical points here in his opening words in chapter 1. First, he acknowledges that there are other written accounts, reliable written accounts of Jesus' life and ministry, and they're already circulating among the churches. And those accounts, he says, are based on eyewitness testimony. And the wealth of this eyewitness testimony, the the written accounts of Jesus, of his ministry, of his teaching, of his death and resurrection, they all functioned, as one scholar put it, as an ancient internet. That is, you had all of this information circling among the churches, all of these different eyewitnesses, so that at any given moment, churches could access reliable accounts of what Jesus had said, what he taught, how he lived, how he died, and how he rose. The churches were in regular contact with each other and with the apostles and all of those who had committed to paper in writing the account of Jesus' life and ministry. The second thing that Luke says here that's so important is that he has personally investigated the thing. He has committed much time to interviewing eyewitnesses. And one of the things we can tell from his birth narrative and beyond is that he in all likelihood had sat and spoken with Mary, the mother of Jesus, because he writes as one who has spoken to her, who has written down her own words. And he's done that, he says, so that Theophilus can be certain that what he reads here is true. Now We've said so often, and it bears repeating that the New Testament writers, the apostles, and the earliest disciples of Jesus were not interested in following some esoteric religion. They weren't interested in learning how to master some vague practice of spirituality. They wanted the facts. They invested themselves entirely in things that had actually happened, apart from which they would have had no interest in being Christians in the first place. And now here, in the first chapter of Luke, we are given an account of two birth announcements. One to the aged Elizabeth and Zechariah that we really won't be focusing on, but the other one that we will focus on to Elizabeth's much, much younger cousin, Mary. And let's consider, first of all, this remarkable announcement in and of itself. The messenger, of course, is named for us. He is the angel Gabriel, And I can only assume that being visited by an angel would have been far less disruptive and far less frightening than being visited personally by God Almighty. Still, Gabriel has to say what to Mary? Don't be afraid. Fear not. Because that's what you need to hear when an angel shows up. Months later, on the night that Jesus was born, the shepherds tending their flocks outside of Bethlehem were filled with fear. I remember as a kid hearing it in the King James Version, and they were sore afraid. It sounded like a fear that actually inflicted physical pain on them, right? They were sore afraid. What were they afraid of? At the sight of the sky being filled with the angels. This would have been an awesome sight, and it disturbed Mary. And so the angel, the messenger, needs to say, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And Mary, of course, is the recipient. Uh, She was almost certainly In her teen years, a young Jewish woman, she was of peasant stock. She lived in the small village of Nazareth, which was in the region of Galilee. Kent Hughes refers to Mary as, quote, a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. Martin Luther observed that God may well have, quote, gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas's daughter, who was fair, rich clad in gold-embroidered raiment and attended by a retinue of maids-in-waiting. But God preferred a lowly woman from a lowly town. We are given two other details about Mary. She was a virgin. She was a, a woman of godly character, and she obeyed the law of God. So she was a virgin, and she was also now betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, to be betrothed was to be engaged To be married, but the betrothal period in this time in the ancient Near East was a much more significant uh, event. Um, It was legally binding. Uh, You had to obtain a divorce to break this engagement betrothal time. But the the couple did not live together as man and wife, and they were still to remain chaste during this period. And Gabriel greets her as favored one. In fact, he uses that term twice, that she's the favored one, that that the Lord has shown her favor, she's found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And it's important that we understand that the favor that she has in the eyes of the Lord is more about God than it is about her, meaning that this is the language of grace, that she has found favor in the eyes of the Lord, not because of merit, but because of the sheer grace of God. Because like the rest of fallen humanity, Mary was a sinner who needed a Savior. Now that said, she is, from all we can tell here, a woman of fine, godly character. But that did not exempt her from the need for a Savior. And she has found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And you know, there is a sense in which every single one of you who knows Jesus can say that you have found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You have not merited God's grace. But if you believe in Jesus, if the gospel is good news to you, if you hear the message of the cross, and rather than being offended, you are thrilled by it, that's because God has been gracious to you. You found favor in his eyes. And then there's a word about the lineage of this woman, Mary. Look at that little clause in verse 27 that She was betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Now, Joseph is in the lineage of King David, and we'll find out from another one of the Gospel accounts that so is Mary. They both trace their ancestry back to that greatest of all of Israel's kings, David. And when you see this, when you see that Joseph, and we'll see elsewhere that Mary, both of them are of the house of David, that's a big red covenant flag waving at that point. It's God saying, I am at work, this is prophecy fulfilled, this is me keeping my promise to David. Links back to what we read earlier in the service from 2 Samuel chapter 7. And, And that Joseph and Mary were both descended from David's line also means that Jesus had a sort of dual belonging to the line of David. Through Joseph, though Jesus was not biologically linked to Joseph, but he was legally linked to Joseph and therefore legally bound to the line of David. Through Mary, he was biologically bound to the line of David and then a therefore a double heir of David, thus fulfilling the messianic anticipations and expectations and prophecies of what the Messiah would be. And then there's the message itself that the angel delivers. You see there, verse 30, again, you have found favor. That's the language of grace, not human merit. And behold, verse 31, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, it bears repeating here and reminding that Jesus is the Greek pronunciation of the Hebrew Yeshua, where we get our name Joshua. It means Yahweh saves and this is the very mission statement of Jesus. His name declares who he is and what he will do. Now, this announcement had to have been deeply troubling to Mary. Deeply troubling to her. Why? Because she's a virgin. How is she going to conceive? And this was in fulfillment to the prophecy given through Isaiah. Isaiah about the coming messiah in isaiah chapter 7 he prophesies therefore the lord himself will give you a sign behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name emmanuel which means god with us luke's account is steeped in old testament allusions he is showing his readers that jesus is not some brand new thing on the scene wholly anticipated, but in keeping with God's work throughout history to bring the Messiah to save His people. Look at what he says in in verses 32 and 33. He will be great and and, and, and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Again, this is covenantal language. This is linked back to 2 Samuel and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom. There will be no end. Now the angel declares that this miraculously conceived child is going to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the fulfillment of all that had been expected about the Messiah. Jesus would be called the Son of the Most High. He'd receive David's throne, and he would reign forever and ever. And now we get to the central point. This miracle that's announced is the miracle of miracles. The mystery of mysteries. And in verse 34, of course, Mary asks the question that would be on anybody's mind. How am I going to conceive, she asks, given the fact that I am a virgin? Now, Mary knows how babies are made. And being a young woman of godly character, she has remained chaste, even during her time of betrothal to Joseph. That's always been the expectation that God has given to his people, that for his glory and for their good, for our health and for our flourishing, God has gifted this physical intimacy to husband and wife, those who are bound together in holy marriage before the Lord. A husband and a wife. And all other expressions of that intimacy are sinful by nature. Again, this is a little clue into the consistency in the character of of Mary. And then in verse 35, Gabriel very simply explains the miracle of the virgin conception. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus Will be conceived apart from any physical union, but rather by the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. Now, here we see that a mystery that is beyond our full comprehension can be stated very clearly in intelligible words, but that doesn't mean that we can understand its depths. Take note of the word overshadowed here, because that word has an important function. It points back to the work of the Holy Spirit to bring about life and order. At the creation, Genesis 1, chapter 1, verse 2, the Holy Spirit, we are told, hovered above or overshadowed the waters, meaning that he is bringing order to all that the word has brought about. In Exodus, the Spirit overshadowed the tabernacle with the cloud of his glory. Later, the Spirit would overshadow Jesus at his baptism, the beginning of his public ministry, and it was by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're told in Romans chapter 1, that Jesus was raised from the dead. So we're just starting to scratch the surface here of something very, very deep. And ultimately, the angel explains this in verse 37, in answer to Mary's question, nothing will be impossible with God. Mary, I know that I have just described to you something that is impossible, but you need to know that nothing will be impossible with God. Now, can we just camp on those words for a moment? Because I want to make sure that we properly apply them. Those words, nothing shall be impossible with God, were not given to us so that we could you know, pass for 300 yards. Okay. And nothing will be impossible for God, you know, or, or that we will always get the job promotion, or that the girl that we are infatuated with will fall in love with us. Nothing will be impossible with God, we tell her. No, no, no. That's not, that's not how you apply this. But rather, in the midst of her shock, and the midst of being told something that is going to upend her life, She's given this word of assurance, nothing will be impossible with God. Now that promise did not change the fact that Mary is going to walk through the fire in her life. She's going to be followed by rumors and innuendos and outright accusations. She's going to be misunderstood, she herself will misunderstand, and she will live to see her son executed. So nothing will be impossible with God is not the promise that your life will be free of hardship and sorrow. But it means that your life in this fallen world will be accompanied by the companionship of God Almighty who comforts the sorrowing, who redeems our suffering. Nothing's impossible with Him. It's why we pray big prayers. But it's also why we ultimately pray, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Because He is better, and His will is better. And in the midst of your grief, and in the midst of your pain, and in the midst of your sorrow, even if God has not changed that, even if God won't turn that around right now for you, though your heart might long for that, we can still hear this truth, because it's true about God in every generation. That nothing's impossible for him. He says this to Mary as a way to comfort her because her life is never going to be the same after this. Now, if you have a problem with miracles, because that's what we're talking about here, right? If you have a problem with miracles, the miracles that are recorded in the Bible, then your problem really isn't with miracles per se. Your problem is with God. Because since God is, it follows that he has the freedom and the power to work within his creation in whatever way he chooses. So if you say, I don't believe the miracles of the Bible, well, you're certainly free to, to, to believe that. But please understand, if you believe in God, but you say, I don't believe in the supernatural, that is a conflict there. That's a contradiction. Christianity is unambiguously unapologetically supernatural. Why? Because we know that God is. And since God is, he works in and through and outside and over all of his creation. And that means at times there were miracles. Now, miracles aren't somehow beyond um, what is natural because whatever God does in a sense is natural. But it's certainly beyond our grasp. It certainly transcends our understanding. And so if you adopt the anti-supernaturalism of theological liberalism, then you have a position that is far closer to atheism than biblical theism. And this here that's being described is the biggest and the greatest and the most incomprehensible miracle of them all, that the eternal Son of God takes upon himself a human nature and enters the world through the womb of a virgin. And we refer to this miracle as the incarnation, which means enfleshment. John chapter one verse fourteen: the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And though, to borrow the word from the, the, the term from the Nicene Creed, though Jesus is very God of very God, the Eternal Son entered humanity as a real human. Person That without sacrificing or in any way diminishing his eternally divine nature, the Son of God, to use Paul's words from Philippians 2, took upon himself the form of a servant, becoming man. And yet even in taking upon himself a human nature, the Son remains, in the words of Paul from Colossians 1, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That means the Lord of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And so we have a real flesh and bone and blood man conceived in the womb of a virgin, a real person, a real human being who is simultaneously, always, without any interruption, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the Lord over all creation, In the person of Jesus, God and man meet. In its early years, the church struggled both to guard this truth from all the heresies that kept popping up, but also to give language to help explain these deep mysteries. Now, I wasn't going to use this technical theological term until I learned that our youth have learned this term. And this being a competition, I'm not going to let them win. <laughs> Kidding, but not really. Um, no, no, seriously, I'm, I'm sufficiently impressed that our youth ministry has, has taught our youth this term. Well, we are going to learn it as well. And what we have is the mystery of Jesus' two natures, his divine nature and his human nature. And what we have there is what has been called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. Now you know that term if you didn't already. And isn't it exciting? Hypostatic union. Work that into your Christmas meal tomorrow. Hypostatic union. But here, listen, this is glorious truth. Hypostatic union is the theological term used to describe the union of two natures, divine and human, within the person of Christ hypostasis is the Greek term for subsistence Uh, think personal existence so the hypostatic union refers to the fact that Jesus possesses both an eternally divine nature and a human nature without any mixture or confusion of the two yet held in perfect union in the one person of Christ Now, if all of that is hard to understand, you're in good company. The most brilliant theologians in history have gladly acknowledged that the incarnation, God becoming a man, the dual natures of Christ, the hypostatic union and the doctrine of the Trinity, that these are full of mystery. But here, get this, mystery does not mean unreasonable or irrational. That's not what mystery means. The mystery of the person of Jesus Christ and his two natures, the mystery of the Trinity, is not a contradiction. It's not irrational. Mystery means that as finite creatures, we have a hard time fully comprehending infinite truth. The church has always known, even when we've struggled with the mystery of it all, the church has always known that Jesus Christ is to be worshipped in the same way as the Father is to be worshipped. Not as another God, or simply a mode of God, but as the one God. We give Jesus, the Son, the same honor and praise and glory that we give to God the Father. And we do this... Because there is one God Almighty. And this one indivisible God is simultaneously Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we know this because that's what the Bible reveals in the very first chapter of Genesis. Where the Father commands and the Word, that is the Son, accomplishes and the Spirit overshadows. In the very first chapter. Chapter of the Bible, the triune nature of God is starting to peek through for us. So that by the time we get to John chapter 1, verse 1, we read these words In the beginning, going right back to Genesis language, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the person of God the Son, therefore, there is both an isness and a withness. I made up those words. But in the person of the Son there is both an isness and a witness in terms of God. He is God and he is with God. This is language, human language given to a mystery that is so deep we cannot fully comprehend it. He is with God and he is God. And so Father, Son and Holy Spirit are God, not gods. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are God, but the one God Almighty is eternally triune, such as the one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now at this point, at some point, when we are contemplating these matters, we just have to go to Paul's doxology of Romans chapter 11 and say, oh, the depths, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are your ways, how unscrutable are you, O oh God, And you know, oftentimes that's the best application of passages of Scripture and biblical truth. Not, how will this make me better at my job, although that's fine to ask those questions. But do you have room in your heart for the application, if you like, to simply be this, behold your God? Is your capacity for awe and worship doxology and devotion is your capacity for those things broad enough and deep enough and high enough to embrace this marvelous mysterious truth and say oh the depths worship him today the application of this truth is simply that that jesus christ your savior is your god and how can you not praise him how can you walk away from Him? How can you continue to live away from Him? This, that, that this is true of Him. Who would reject Him? Who would walk away from the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? At this time of year, we, we sing, Adeste Fidelis, O come all ye faithful. And in that hymn, we sing some of the very words of the Nicene Creed, God of God, light of lights. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten not created. And what's the call then? Oh, come, let us adore him. Not debate him, although sometimes that's necessary when error comes along. But ultimately, the call, in light of this truth, the call is, oh, come, let us adore Him. Another hymn we sing at this time of year has these words, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity. The call, the response to this truth has to begin, has to terminate there. Worship, praise, adoration, doxology, the giving of all of our life, the bowing down to Him and worshiping Him. And you know, the incarnation, this whole mystery and miracle, was God's mighty response to humanity's sin and the deadly consequences of sin. Think about it. Our sin is so great, And God's holiness is so real that a radical solution had to be made. A radical response was required. If God had simply said, I know you're sinners, I know you've broken my law, I know you've offended everything about me, but you know what, I'm a nice guy, and so I'm going to let bygones be bygones. If God approached us that way, he would be neither holy nor just. But because he's holy and just, and because he's merciful, his solution has a moral genius to it that is stunning. The price for sin will be paid. Wrath, holy, righteous wrath will be poured out. And yet God says, I will pour out my wrath upon myself in the person of Jesus. And there at the cross... The incarnate Son of God hangs suspended between heaven and earth, and we see at the cross the meeting place of God's unutterable holiness, His righteousness and judgment, and His vast, unspeakable, unplumbable depths of mercy. Well, We see Mary's response, don't we, in verse 38? Mary's response to this highly disruptive and terrifying announcement. And what we see in Mary is the proper posture of the disciple before Jesus. See what she says, verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. You know, nothing would ever be the same for Mary. She knew that the unconventional circumstances of her pregnancy would be met with rumor and accusation. And we see this in the Gospel accounts where comments are made about Jesus' origins. Believe it or not, there were a lot of people around there that didn't believe in the virgin conception. Can you imagine? And so that followed Mary around. It put mud upon her name. It put mud upon Joseph, her faithful husband's name. And of course, it followed Jesus around as well. And she knew that this would be the case. In fact, when she hears this announcement first made, she doesn't even know if Joseph will stay with her. In fact, when he first hears about it, he determines not to. But still, she surrenders herself to the Lord and accepts that he is trustworthy and that he knows what he's doing. You know, so much of the Christian walk is grounded in that, isn't it? God is in control, and he knows what he's doing. God is in control, and he knows what he's doing. Mary knew full well that this sudden pregnancy would have all the potential to not only scandalize her family and ruin her reputation, but to ruin the reputation of Joseph. And yet we are given a glimpse into the godly character of this young woman when she not only submits to the news given to her, but she actually embraces the circumstances with the disposition of a humble servant of God. And she doesn't do it reluctantly because we go on to see that she even now praises God for this. Her own words, what later became known as the Magnificat, are recorded for us there In Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46, Mary, in essence, basically begins to sing. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked upon the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. In that moment, God's grace, his blessing, is what filled her field of vision. The fact that there were going to be hard circumstances, she was no doubt still aware of. But what filled her field of vision was what God is like. He's in control, and he is good. And so she's able to say, even in the midst of this disruptive moment that is going to hold a lot of pain for her as life unfolds, she is able to say, my soul magnifies the Lord. I wonder if our hearts could be trained to respond that way when the disruptions come, when the shoe falls, when the hurt comes, when the unwelcome news comes. I'm not saying that we deny the reality of those pains. Certainly not. Christians don't have to do that. But in accepting the reality of the pain that comes our way, in accepting the reality of the griefs that are visited upon us in our life, we hold them in such a way before the reality of God that we are still able to say in the midst of it, my soul magnifies the Lord. I'm not not fond of this circumstance. I would have written the script differently. But you know what? At the end of the day, my soul magnifies the Lord. One commentator marvels that, quote, an ordinary human girl of flesh and blood believed that God would perform the impossible miracle of the virgin birth and went on believing it and bore the incalculable honor and the immeasurable burden without losing faith and nerve and proper humility and sanity itself. But This is what happens when God gives His people faith. It's what happens when, by His grace, we trust Him. We trust Him with our lives and we trust Him with our future. We trust Him with our sorrows and we trust Him with our joys. We trust Him in our most frightening moments, We trust Him in our most crushing losses. We trust Him when we sin and fall flat on our face and we trust Him again when we find ourselves needing His mercy. That's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is one who believes in Jesus and in one way or another says day after day, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me just according to your word. Do you believe like that? Have you trusted Him like that? I wonder today, if you could honestly say, I have not trusted Him like that, but I want to trust Him like that. Would you cry out to Him? Would you call out to Him? Would you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ today? Maybe these are things you've heard your whole life, but who knows why? Because of some favored sins or because of some hurts or some losses or some griefs or some trauma. You've walked away from the Lord and you've put vast distance between Him and you. Can you believe that He's as close to you as a whispered prayer for mercy? He is. Don't don't let your sin keep you from Jesus. Don't let your pride keep you from Jesus. Don't let your calamities or your opinions keep you from Jesus. Believe in Him. In fact, the Scriptures are so bold as to give us the calculus for salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. For the Christian, that's the best news in the world. Will you believe that? Will you come to the Lord for the first time in your life? Or will you return to the Lord finally after all these years of estrangement? Are you done with your sin? Oh, it's great news if you're done with your sin because you have a Savior. You have a merciful God who loved you enough and saw your sin and understood it so deeply that He gave to you the one remedy that could save your soul, the Incarnation. God became a man for us and our salvation, for you and your salvation. Believe on Him and you will be saved. Let's pray. Now, our Father and our God, we ask your help. Lord, would you please grant faith to the unbelieving today? Will you please be merciful to the prodigal today? For the one who has wandered away, Lord, bring him, bring her back to yourself today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.